let's give a good uh, a Calvary Chapel Green Meadow welcome to Don Roach. Thank you. You dance well. Good morning. Greetings from the Shire. It's a privilege to be here. Um, Rich, we've known the Chapmans for a long time, and yeah, we still love each other. And so, yeah, what a blessing. It's not a publicity stunt or anything. Um, worship was great. I'm not used to a stage this big. I mean, I might just meander. This is exciting. It's like, usually they got me tethered to this pulpit, you know, like this. But um, I'm excited to be here. Um, Thy Word, I haven't sung that song since the 1900s. So, you know, it was fun. It was great. So, um, Let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 9. Lord, once again, we thank you for your grace and mercy by which we stand. We pray, Lord, in Jesus' name, that this message would be delivered and received in the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray, Lord, for the clarity that only you can give. We pray, Lord, that you would make the precision strikes in our hearts that you know we need, and that you would get all the glory in Jesus' name, amen. 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 Now, as chapter 8 of Mark closes out, we've, you see the story of Jesus casting out um, these demons out of these two people into the group of a herd of pigs. And you, you remember what happened then, right? They all jumped off the cliff and into the water. And usually whenever somebody teaches on this part, they throw in like a really dumb joke about deviled ham or the swine flu, or something like that. But um, apparently, these pigs were just dying to entertain their host. So none of this sat very well with the uh, for pig farmers of the day, because Jesus, after all, you know, was an unclean... It's kind of like the marijuana growers, you know? This was a crop that really shouldn't have been, and this is the unclean thing, and Jesus had just kind of put an end to the pig belly futures, as far as they're concerned. So... They called the whole town over, and rather than rejoice at the miracle that happened, they, they begged him to leave, which is really pretty tragic, because there are some prayers that you probably don't want the Lord to answer, right? I mean, remember when Peter was in the boat and recognized it was Jesus? He's like, depart from me. You know, there's some prayers that we say that's not always in our own best interest. And the sad truth is a lot of people will reject Jesus because they want to keep their unclean ways. That's outside of the church. Now, inside of the church, what we tend to do is compartmentalize things, right? I've got this part nailed. I just hope the pastor doesn't bring up this issue because then I might have to confront or, or, or deal with it. So uh, we need wisdom in that way. And it was, you've heard this before by Jim Elliott, who rightly declared, no fool, he is no fool who gives up that which he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. And it's the truth. Jesus put it this way, whoever seeks to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will preserve it. And how sad it is when we actually choose something else that we want over what the Lord has for us. You know, sometimes we cling to the illusion of control and, and we look at the parameters that God gives us to protect us and we look at it as, as if some sort of 
like if God's some cosmic killjoy, like a fish jumping out of a bowl in the name of freedom, we need to understand that when God lines up parameters, he has our best interest in mind. So all of this happens, and then that's where we start off in verse 1. It says, so he got into the boat, crossed over, and came into his own city. His own city is Capernaum. Now, perhaps he's having a meeting at Simon Peter's house or the house of some other disciple. And it says, then behold, they brought to him a paralytic on a bed. And it says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven you. And if you want to learn more about the story, Mark's gospel gives us a lot more detail in chapter 2. And we find out that what was really happening is they were having this, like a Bible study, a teaching in this house, and it was packed. It was full. You couldn't even get near the door. There was, the house itself was packed right around outside the house. And then four men come on the scene, and they have their paralytic friend. He can't move, and they couldn't get near Jesus. So what they do is they get on the roof of the house, and they break through, and they lower their friend. Now, that's kind of disruptive, don't you? Imagine if I'm sitting here teaching, and all of a sudden it's like, <laughs> and, and look, and, and all of a sudden a, you know, a shaft of light comes through, and faces pop through, and all of a sudden they hoist this guy down. But these guys are pretty faithful friends. And clearly, these guys had the faith to believe that Jesus could do something. Otherwise, they wouldn't have gone through all this trouble, right? And it says there in verse 2 that Jesus saw the faith of these guys. It said Jesus seeing their faith. You know, the fact that they would do it proves it. So I want to say something about people's faith. I'm sure many of you are familiar with some of the weird things that have been taught about faith, you know, in, in the faith movement and things like that. And the interesting thing is a lot of people in the faith movement have a lot of scriptural things right, but they miss the mark on a few key things. Jesus did often say to an, an individual, he said, you know, be, be it according to your faith, be healed. And that's great. But we, must, we have to be careful to realize that's not the exclusive rule. That's not the only way it works. Other times you see friends, you see families, you see loved ones. And Jesus is allowing faith in, in, in people to be healed for different things. Other times, like at the tomb of Lazarus, right? Jesus raised his friend from the dead, certainly not on the base of of the morning sisters' faith or anything like that. So, you know, whose faith was it that healed Lazarus? So you see what my point is? It, it, it's interesting how sometimes the faith leaders will say, you know, the reason you weren't healed is because you didn't have enough faith. And if that's true, then you should say to the faith, well, but then you have enough faith. You know what I'm saying? Uh, it's not a mystical force that generates this power to heal. It's not the way it works. It's not like a Christianized witchcraft, and which some people have made it. Faith in this case, in this story here, is a matter of getting the person who you care about to Jesus. That was the, what they did. That was their faith in action. They believed that this would do something, so they, they put wheels to their faith, and they did this. And these are the kind of friends we all need. The kind of friends that will brave a little criticism, even take a little risk, to get us to Jesus. And this may be the kind of friend that God is calling you to be on behalf of other people. So Jesus looks, he says to the paralytic, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven. So 
and uh, I'm it's really not plagiarism if I say I stole this from another commentator, but another commentator says, faith, forgiveness, and healing. That's what the story's about. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Without forgiveness, it's impossible for us to see God and be with him. And without healing, it's impossible for us to stand eternally in his presence. So forgiveness is essential. A lot of people are blind to the need of forgiveness. So often we're so focused, even on our physical needs, that we kind of brush the spiritual needs aside. Now, I might be wrong, but I'm not sure that these guys brought their friend to get his sins forgiven. I, I think when they lowered him down and Jesus said, be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven, they, maybe those guys were like, that, that's good, but that's not why we brought him. You know what I mean? It's like, ah, oh, we want to see him healed. But contrary to how we feel, our greatest need is not physical. It's the spiritual Many times our evaluation of ourselves and what we think we need is not in line with God's evaluation of ourselves. A lot of times we're just not really in sync. We, we act as if we make an intellectual assessment, but that doesn't mean God agrees with us. You, know, you remember in the book of Revelation in chapters 2 and 3 and you see the, the letters to the seven churches and when Jesus is addressing the church of Smyrna, he says, I know your works and your tribulation and your poverty. And he says, but... You are rich. And then to the church of Laodicea, he says, because you say I'm rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you don't know that you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. See, we don't always know what's best for us. We're not always right in that area, but he does. We think we know what we need. He knows what we need. What good would it do Jesus to restore this man's health and his legs so he can dance his way into hell. That's really not a big favor. And a lot of times with the healing programs that the church generates and man offers and multi-steps and generic pop psychology and all of this, uh, the problem is our greatest need is a spiritual need. And, and not just general. And I'm not talking about just acknowledging a higher power. We need to receive his grace, his forgiveness. That's the number one need. And we have this tendency to make believe that we're all right when we're really not. And when we do that, we might impress a few people, but we're actually looking pretty foolish. You know, when I was in, I think I was a freshman in high school, when I was in my math class, and I had a really nice teacher. Her name was Mrs. Ligarski. And for some reason, she, I was a bit of a, clown, but she put up with me, and I remember uh, I was so foolish. I did, my, I did math in ink, you know, and, and I had my test come back, and I looked, and I didn't get a very good grade, and I really didn't care that much about it, but I looked at one of these things, and I noticed that the, okay, she marked it wrong. I, I had a three. The right answer is eight. Putting a three to an eight is really kind of an easy fix. So I figured, I'll just turn that three into an eight, and I change it, and I, I walk up to the teacher, and I said, Mrs. Lukarski, I think you made a mistake here. And she looked, and she said, what? And I said, and I pointed to it. She looked at it, and then she looked at me, and she looked at it again, and then she looked at me. And she had this expression on her face like, you know, are you serious? See, here's what I didn't, I'm colorblind. 
I used the wrong color ink. And so here I am looking pretty smug. And she's looking at me like, you are so, so clueless. You know, and, and no doubt I, I look really foolish. But the truth is we look even worse when we're making believe we're okay with God when the truth is beyond obvious. When we're walking around as if, oh, I got this. And he's like, no, you don't. Why are you making believe? Why are you clinging to the illusion of control? Why are you acting as if you had this? That's what makes you okay when God knows what you really need, what issues you really need to address. And many times it is the very issue you're hoping the pastor doesn't bring up. Right? That's the way it works. So can we say that our conscience is truly clear? You know, we, otherwise, we end up playing some, like a spiritual version of, of whack-a-mole. Whenever some ugly reality pops its head, you just kind of put it down so you can just continue on. That's not the way we're called to live, you know? With these little issues that pop up and we just bury it, you know? Uh, unforgiveness pops up and whack, put that down, and, and then an apology to this person and whack, and all of these different things. Meanwhile, we keep on a good game face, but it's pretty clear to God that, you know, we're making believe we know what we're doing. And a lot of times, these little infractions that we do, that we make believe aren't a big deal, are small, but the guilt is huge. And when a transgression gets huge, as it grows and the guilt becomes unbearable, we struggle to maintain a clean conscience. So I say all of this because it's like, what are you doing with your failures? You know, big or small? I mean, we all have them. We all fall short. And it's my hope that we just bring them right to the foot of the cross. Not make believe we know what we're doing and just say, Lord, apart from you, I'm, I'm hopeless. The only reason I can even come up here is because I'm, I'm a total grace case, and I acknowledge that. I was the kid that had to sit in the front row right by the teacher. Right? And when I got involved, in, as soon as I got saved, God said, the only way, we've we got to put this guy in ministry, that way he sits right next to the teacher. It's the only way, otherwise I'm just going to be like, you know, some of you guys where they just shoot right off. There's this accountability. So we have to just bring our issues right to the foot of the cross. Because if you don't, then you're probably doing what everyone else does, making believe everything's okay when it's not. And when we do that, what ends up happening is we might think we're getting away with something, but you're not because all of a sudden you're already reaping a harvest. Your, your heart's already getting hard. You end up losing spiritual sensitivity, not being used to the max but you know by the holy spirit because you're busy calling the shots and we have to be careful anyhow when we have an issue just push it into the light otherwise if you don't do that you know what the enemy is going to have you beeping at your own brake lights for fear of exposure that's the way the enemy works you give them a little legal ground to exploit in your life right and then all of a sudden you're thinking well what if they knew right if all of a sudden your name pops up on that screen and your secret thought life shows up there and everyone's reading it, it'd probably be the last time you came to church here, right? And yet, you wouldn't want everyone to know that, but you're okay that God knows that? That's why we, we just got to be honest. We just got to bring it out there. So we, we need to... So Jesus says, be of good cheer. Wouldn't you love to hear Jesus say that to you? Just to see him look at you and smile. Be of cheer, a good cheer. Your, your sins are forgiven. The word there is aphimei, which means sent away, right? Which is pretty awesome. 
That's what we need. Jesus wrote in Psalm 103, verse 12, As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. He said to the paralytic, Be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven. Now, if your sins are forgiven, then you should be of good cheer. You know, that's the most important thing. That's your number one need. We forget that. We have a reason to dance. We have a reason to sing. We have a reason to rejoice. We often forget that. How sad that we go day to day not making a big deal out of the fact that our sins are forgiven. Other people need to see that. They need to see the joy of the redeemed. But in, instead, what happens is we, we're like, okay, when we, we treat it like we got some sort of fire insurance, and then the next thing, you know, we get sucked into the vortex of self, and we live a spiritually impotent life. And joy needs to be seen. Your sins are forgiven. You're not going to enter into eternity in a marred, sin-stained state. That's pretty awesome. So, we get to the next verse. And at once... Verse 3, some of the scribes said within themselves, this man blasphemes. See, now, the Jews were convinced that Jesus was insulting God because he's claiming to have the powers that only God can have, right? So on one hand, they're right in thinking only God can forgive sins, but on the other hand, of course, what they're going to do in the future is going to be blasphemy because they're going to revile the name of Jesus, and the battle with Jesus that's going to ultimately end to the cross, it begins now. This is where it's really going to start. They're not ready to launch a public attack. So while we know that Jesus alone can say your sins are forgiven, and we rejoice with that, and yet we can say with authority, your sins are forgiven if you repent, if you confess, if you receive his grace and forgiveness. Verse 4, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? So he knows what they're thinking. He calls them out on it. Um, Mark chapter 2, verse 7 says they were thinking, Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God? And so they're right. Only God can forgive sins. Jesus continues in verse 5. For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Arise and walk? Now, he says which is easier to say, not which is easier to do. Obviously, it would be easier to say to somebody, Oh, you're forgiven. Because how do you prove that? Right? The claim to be able to heal, you know, proving that is a little, little more complicated there. Because one is visible, visible. That's visual and tangible smashed together. That's where that comes from, okay. <laughs> one is visual and the other is spiritual and yet far more important. And again, the, it's the spiritual side that's much more paramount in our life. Now, which is easier to do for Jesus on the other hand, it's a different story. Physical healing or redemption from iniquity. I mean, to heal, all he has to do is say the word, but to forgive, he's going to have to endure the cross. Just an interesting question. Because God's not going to compromise his justice, right? We know all sin, it will be reckoned with. And so Jesus is essentially placing his ministry on the line. If this guy does not get up, then his words are hollow. Verse 6, but that you may know the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He then says to the paralytic, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. Now, no doubt at this point, a hush falls over the crowd. Remember the scene. We're in a packed house. Can you imagine how thick the air must have been? Everybody watching? If he walks, if he gets up now, that means this man 
is God in the flesh. That's what it means. Verse 7, and he arose and he departed to his house, which means he was forgiven, which means he was completely healed. Right? No doubt the people's minds are grappling with the logic of what they're witnessing. I mean, let's put this together. He's walking, which means he's healed. And if he's healed, that means he's forgiven, which means he does have the power to forgive, which means he's Emmanuel. This is God with us. Verse 8, and when the multitude saw this, they marveled and they glorified God who had given such power to men. Mark, chapter, Mark tells us in chapter 2, verse 12, it says, Immediately he rose, took up his bed, and went out to the, in the presence of them all. So they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We've never seen anything like this. So imagine the crowds. I mean, multitudes with their jaws just dropping, trying to wrap their mind around the dynamics of what, they're, what they just witnessed and what they just heard, you know. Uh, they, they, I'll bet you the ears were popping because everyone was all gasping at the same time. They probably sucked all the air out of the place. It's like, what a crazy thing. All of a sudden, this guy gets up and he's walking toward the door. He's on his way out, you know, through the crowd. Excuse me, Mr. Scribe. Excuse me, getting his way out. You guys can, I didn't mean to interrupt the Bible study. You guys can just pick it up where you left off. And he leaves the scene. It's like, what a glorious little story. And what I like to do is I want to rewind the scene real quick. And I want to look at it through a couple of perspectives. If you, so imagine, I, because what I do is when I get a narrative, a story in the Gospels, I relive it as different characters. It gives me a little more insight. So let's rewind the tape a little bit and imagine this from perspective number one through the eyes of the crowd. Okay, you're part of the crowd. Okay, you're, you're amongst the throng there. And you're saying, this, the rabbi, this Jesus fellow that we've all heard about is, is at this house. This is what the buzz is all about. You know, and you won't believe the things that I've heard. How he's healed people and, and done things with weather and fed multitude or whatever. You know, all of these different things that you've heard. Actually, some of that hasn't happened yet at this point. But the, the buzz is on. So now you, you go there, you're watching, the house is packed, Jesus is teaching, and then all of a sudden little pieces of the ceiling start to fall down and a shaft of light comes down and people start looking through and this man's being lowered onto the center stage right in front of everybody. So clearly the question would be burning in your heart. What's he going to do here? Can he really heal? I mean, I, we've heard about his, what he's done. We're going to find out, Right? And so all of a sudden, there's this hush. It's like, shh, shh, shh. Jesus is saying something to the man. So What? Did he just say his sins are forgiven? I mean, can he do that? I mean, that would mean, no. That's, it could, now he's talking to the scribes. Well, I guess it would be easier to say that your sins are forgiven. So can you imagine what's going through their minds if you're just sitting there watching this whole thing? And you're beholding, all of a sudden, as he gets up, you see the, 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 the face of the five light up. You see him get up, and you're trying to register. What an amazing perspective. Now let's rewind the tape again. Let's look at it through the eyes of the scribes. The scribes are like a lot of people today that consider themselves right with God. Okay? They don't see themselves as sinners in need of a Savior. 
Maybe they were sincerely checking out the new teacher because they heard the buzz and all that's happening. But certainly they didn't like the idea of Jesus offering forgiveness. Not only because, of course, you know, they didn't believe he was God, but also they probably felt that you can't just justify a person just because they simply ask for it or receive forgiveness without earning it. You can't just say, you're forgiven. You got hoops to jump through. You got stuff you got to do. You got to be righteous like us. That's what our whole life is about. We're the scribes. We wear fancy scribe garb. You know, people look at us and they're impressed by our spirituality. You, you can't just walk in on the scene and be forgiven. Well, yes, you can. Yes, you can. Grace is free. Not cheap, you know, but it's free. And I, I see many in church st still struggle with this today. Like, you know, all of a sudden some misfit comes through the door. And it's like, uh, we need to give them the grace that you need when you were the misfit coming through the door. You know? We call our church the Isle of Misfit Toys because <laughs> that way it's just, it just disarms people. You know, when they hear that, all of a sudden it's like, oh, okay. You know, I'm messed up just like everyone else. It's like, yeah, it's because it's really not about you. It's about what he's done. It's not saying let's talk about the hoops you got to jump through. Let's talk about what Jesus has already done. Right? Religion says do this, do this, do this. Jesus said done. Right? It is finished to tell us that. So give people the grace you need when you're at your lowest point in life. Well, now, anyhow, the scribes, there's some resentment there with the religious experts of the day. They watched them get up. Now they're challenged by this, and this ultimately will lead to their rejection. Now, rewind one more time. How about the paralytic's friends? Okay, If we can only get you to Jesus... You're going to be healed. I believe, I believe that. This is what everyone's saying. I've heard these accounts of different people, blind, seeing, deaf, speaking, all of these things. Brother, you can be like us. It'll be like nothing ever happened. You know, assuming this was a result of something. Maybe he was born that way, but, you know. But it's like, we're going to get you there. And as we get there, it's like, ah, oh, we can't even get near the door. This place is packed, but, you know, we're friends, man. We're not going to give up that easy. We didn't come all this way to give up. You're going to see him. I got an idea. You go up on the roof and you tear it open. All the eyes are just fixed on you as you're lowering him. It's like, <laughs> think we got his attention? Yeah. And then they see Jesus looking at him. It's like, you know, well, this is what we wanted. It's going to happen. Something's going to happen. Jesus is saying something. He's forgiven. And like I said, maybe they're like, oh. That's not what we came here for. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Jesus is now saying, get up and go home. Now, imagine the walk home as one of his friends. Imagine that glorious walk home. It's like, wow, you know, I am so glad we didn't give up. It would have been so easy for us to say, well, you know, this place is packed. We've got to do a little pressing to get in there, you know. But instead, man, they were probably just rejoicing all the way home. Maybe even saying, so, so what's it like to be forgiven? I don't even understand that. And then our final rewind, the paralytic. Right? In that day and age, his condition was considered a judgment from God. Now, whether his illness was caused by sin or not, that's conjecture. We don't really know. Maybe he did do something foolish. And maybe this is the result. We're not certain. But either way, he's going to be branded that way. 
That's the way people look at him and go, oh, look at that guy. Cursed of God. That's his label. That's his life. Cursed and dependent on others for everything. His friends got his hopes up. Right? They want to take me to see this Jesus guy. They're saying, oh, I believe he can do it. He's the real thing. Now imagine being him. As all of a sudden, you're tearing the roof. And being lowered into the crowd. I mean, maybe some people were a little upset at what was happening. Like I said, this isn't a big, this is a major disruption. You know, at least the owner might be a little upset. Right? What's he thinking? Right? And what's Jesus going to say? This is what, he'd be, what I'd be thinking, right? If I'm lying down there and I'm being lowered and I, I can't move and all this is happening, it's like, man, I hope people don't get really, really mad at me, you know, because there's not much I can do to defend myself, right? It's like, and what's Jesus going to say? Clearly, we've disrupted Jesus in the middle of what he's doing. I wonder if he's going to be mad. Imagine if all of a sudden the crowd is coming into view and you're being lowered. Every eye is on you. That must have been weird. That must have been intense. And then you see him. Imagine that. Imagine your heart as you see him look at you. And he says, be of good cheer. It's like, imagine the decompression all of a sudden. It's like, oh, Jesus looking at me, calls me son. Be of good cheer. I'm sure he was smiling when he said that, but you can't. Really pull that off like, be of good cheer. Right? So, no doubt he's like, be of good cheer. And I'm sure instantly he was. Instantly the tension is melting away as you're understanding what's going on. Something's happening. You're experiencing something you can't really put your finger on. You realize now you're not cursed of God. You're not cursed of God. You realize that. This, this authority figure, who maybe you don't really understand who he is, but he's a person obviously of great spiritual authority. He looks at you with a smile and love, and everything changes. Be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven. Can it be true? Imagine the wrestling match in this guy's mind. You know, maybe he did do something. Maybe this was the result of something. And he's been just carrying it all his life. And all of a sudden, it's like, no, no, rejoice. It's as good as gone. White as snow. Can you imagine? And at that moment, there's some weird supernatural event going on that you don't quite understand. Because if Jesus says your sins are forgiven, your sins are forgiven. So on some level, some way, some form, you're, you're clean. For the very first time, there's like this veil lifted, and all of a sudden, you, you realize it's going to be okay. Life as I know it is just completely changed, and it's going to be all right. I'm forgiven. I don't think he was disappointed, you know? I'm clean before my Lord. And then you, you see Jesus telling the scribes how he's about to approve to them that he has the authority to, to forgive you. And then he, Jesus looks to you again and says, arise, pick up your bed and go home. It's like, what? And so, you know, you give it a go. You fire up muscles that haven't been fired up before. And they move. And suddenly you can move your legs. I mean, the spiritual side of this is overwhelming. And now the physical side, I mean, there must have been tears of joy. The unspeakable is happening inside you. The people around you are marveling and, you know, and cheering. Maybe some are weeping 
as they realize something really heavy is going on right now in front of them. And you're looking into the eyes of the crowd, and they're all like overwhelmed. And then you look at the eyes of Jesus with more gratitude than you could ever express. You, you don't even know. Words could never explain. And he just looks back at you as if, I know. I know. As if he, his look says, I understand. Amazing grace. Just beautiful. Meanwhile, your friends are going ballistic, right? <laughs> they must have been going crazy. What they wanted happened. I'll bet they couldn't contain themselves, right? They, they, brought him, they brought you there thinking you're the ones that need to be restored, and on the way home, they're realizing, well, I guess I'm the one that needs to be restored. <laughs> you're forgiven. I mean, this is just some wild stuff. And you know what else I like about this and is that uh, the people marveled and glorified God. That's, that's the glorious thing, you know. Today, there's a lot of ministers who kind of mass market these little miracles and they, they but they're the ones receiving the glory for their for these acts as, as if it was their faith but here you know we we don't like the miracles that bring glories to man that's a that's a bad thing but but here this glorifies god so in closing where are you in this story and maybe you're like one of those in the crowds. You want to learn more about Jesus. You're willing to go out of your way to experience him. And, well, praise the Lord, here you are. You know, may you be filled with wonder and awe in the way that you experience him. May you just hold on to who he is as you learn what he's done, how much he cares. Well, maybe you're a little bit like the scribes. You know, Jesus is just all right. And sometimes I resent the changes that he brings my way. He kind of challenges me on ways that I don't really appreciate. You secretly think maybe this area of my life, I'd be a little better off doing it my way instead of his way. Maybe you're like the friends. You just want to see loved ones healed. You're watching someone you care about. You're just watching them struggle and struggle as they try to deal with life. And you know if only, if only they would really have a true experience with the presence of the Lord. That's where the true healing is. And you want to do what you can to help them get there. Or maybe you're like the lame man, healed and delivered. Right? You know, and if so, what a story you have. If you're like me, you can probably relate to some degree to all of these vantage points. The authority of Jesus has been a special emphasis in Matthew's gospel. It's been that way since the Sermon on the Mount back in chapter 7. And it tells us here that the people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught as one having authority, not like the scribes. And then you see the authority over disease and disaster and demons and the, the depravity of man. And not only does he have the, can bring the peace that can calm a storm, but he can bring peace to the conscience of a man has the power over sin. Yeah, he, he's famous for doing amazing, incredible, and unthinkable things and uncuring all of these and touching the untouchable. But and now he claims what is unforgivable to the religious leaders. He proves he's able to forgive sins. The absolute domain of God alone. So, the message is pretty simple. But I think there's plenty to draw from. You know, many times we might hide our light under a bushel. Sometimes we don't bring people to Jesus when we could be doing that. This story would be a non-event if his friends just, you know, said, oh, bummer, house is full. Right? 
And a lot of times, we might be guilty of the same thing. We're not really persevering. It's like we want, we, everyone wants to see spiritual rebirth. We just don't want to go through personal labor pains. We don't want it to cost us anything. Yeah. So think of the things that can happen if we were willing to do that. Think of the future, you know, the testimonies. And the final, my last point is think of this, and this is what I love. You know that this man was forgiven. How? Well, because he got up and walked. He got, him getting up and walked proved that indeed he was forgiven. And forgiveness, as we said, is our greatest need. And that's what Jesus offers us. And for, to prove it's real, Jesus also got up and walked after the cross. You see, that sacrifice that was in your place was proven and received from the Father. It, it's like the Father said, I accept that, which means we're clean. The fact that he got up and walked is a, is a yes and amen for everything. That was, that was where he put all his eggs in one basket. Remember the religious leaders? They wanted a sign to show who, who he is and the authority after he cleansed the temple. And Jesus said, you tear down this temple and three days later I'll bring it up. And he put it all on the line. If he gets up and walks, then all of his promises are yes and amen. And he did that. He made some pretty grandiose claims. Come to seek and say that which is lost. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I'll be coming again. He whom the Son sets free is free indeed. You know, he's going to be the one when it's, that judges the nations. I mean, that's a pretty lofty claim. Which is easier to, for him to say he has the power to forgive you of your sins or to die on a cross for both of us, or all of us, and then say, but that you may know that you can be forgiven, he rose from the dead. Awesome just like he said he would. So do we need forgiveness? Of course. Where are you now with God? Right? I don't ever want to fall into the trap of the five, the scribes and the Pharisees thinking I'm okay when I'm not. I hate it when I catch myself in my edemic mode, my default nature, and I can suddenly find myself defending the very sins that nailed my Savior to the cross. You know, God's has a way of putting his finger on it and say, what about this? And I'm like, well, that's because... I say, I hate that about myself. Don't minimize your sin. Confess it and receive the restoration that your soul needs. Whatever it is. Whatever's hindering your intimacy with your creator, see it for what it is. Ask God to make you really uncomfortable with the things that make him uncomfortable about you. Allow that so you can be transparent. Simple message. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your grace, for your mercy. We thank you, Lord, for loving us. And we thank you, Lord, that you see all of our shenanigans, and yet you still love us. You see how we make believe we got it all together when we really don't. You know everything that's going on behind our eyes. You know our fears. You know what we're afraid of other people knowing. You know it all. And you still desire us to be clean and forgiven and you went to that incredible expense. You, went to, you were willing to go to the cross and endure our shame, our everything, and so that we could actually be clothed in the righteousness of you. Only an act of God can make me a righteous person, make us righteous. And yet you did that. And how foolish we are to say we appreciate it and then 
grab the wheel and insist on being Lord of our own life again. Compartmentalizing. Calling you Lord, Lord, and not saying or doing what you say. We ask that you would give us the humility and intellectual honesty to deal with the issues that your spirit brings up in our life. Pruning hurts, but we do want to bear more fruit. So we want to give you that power of veto in our lives. So for this short time that we're here, we can be busy about our Father's business, bear fruit, and Lord, someday cast this crown before you, saying, look at what a beautiful thing you've done with my life. Lord, we thank you so much for the privilege of belonging to you. In Jesus' name, amen.